I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time. Everybody agrees. I'll stand directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting. Always rooting for the anti All right. Well, welcome to the King and Culture podcast. We have some temporary new intro music, uh, which will factor into what we're talking about today. But Seth, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Luke. That's a fun, peppy new song. I mean, anytime a new Lady Gaga or Taylor Swift album drops, I can count on you for some cultural analysis. And that's what we're going to do a little bit today. I find myself smack dab in the center of the pulp cultural flavor preferences. So I'm, you know, nothing wrong with Taylor Swift. Yeah. I mean, we're not here to critique her new album, really. But we are going to analyze what, what is there to some critique, things. Luke? How can you critique? <laughs> well, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't heard the whole album, so I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, we're going to use at least part of the lyrics we just heard as a launching pad into some conversation, maybe over the next few episodes. So oh, that, yeah. that'll be fun. So well, obviously, the day this album came out, I listened to it as soon as I could. Probably. At midnight? Uh, no, as soon as I could. Without, <laughs> as soon as you could. Without Got being it. inconvenienced by one Perfect. iota. So my alarm went off. Listened to it. And listen to most of the albums pretty mellow, but I listened to this song, Anti Hero, and I thought that is a good song. Not just because I thought it vibed and I was interested in it, but it was just a refreshing message. Hmm. Uh, and I don't know what well, I don't know whether she actually believes what she's saying or not. You know, we'll never know that. But we live in such a, such a cultural moment. We talked about this in some of our recent episodes about. What I would consider uh, an overreaction on mental health emphasis, you know, now everybody has mental health and mental health ends. And in an aware, in an attempt to raise the bar on awareness of trauma, now everything's traumatizing, everything's traumatic. Right. In an effort to include people's voices that have been included, now it's uh, who gets to be check the most victim boxes so their voice matters most. And there's a general uh, resistance in popular culture uh, to responsibility and going, maybe I'm the problem. Mm, yeah. Maybe, maybe it's me. It makes me think back to uh, that. I think we talked about this before in the podcast, but there's this essay contest uh, where they, uh, the, this, this magazine back in like world war two ish, like said, Hey, everybody write in and say, what's the biggest problem in the world. Right. GK Chesterton sent in and the shortest essay. Everybody said, <laughs> I am, you know, I was like, man, it seems like Taylor Swift's been reading a little Chesterton. <laughs> it does seem like that. Uh, doesn't actually seem like that, but I, well, she probably <laughs> at least that lyric feels like that. So, so Ta- Taylor, in case people Taylor are not, Swift, if you're listening, Taylor, do you read G.K. Chesterton? Yes or no? <laughs> in case she finds herself listening. To this yeah, and Taylor, if you're listening, hey, we're big fans, and uh, thanks for being fans of ours as well. So, absolutely, we, we appreciate it. Please like, share, and subscribe, Taylor Swift. Thank you very much. That's right. Uh, album or tickets for our thing will be exclusive to our fan club <laughs> soon. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, Get so in line behind both the people. <laughs> should we keep going? <laughs> we should keep going. Yeah. Um, so Seth, for those who weren't really dialed in and were like kind of startled actually to hear the sultry sounds of Taylor Swift, uh, read for us the lyric that got you thinking about what we're going to talk about in this episode. Well, it's her song "Antihero," and the basic premise of it is like there's all these uh, shows now where there's the hero. Um, but then there's like the anti-hero. Kind yeah, of like, a lot of them are like that. Yeah, like I the think the main it, character is like, yeah, I don't, I, yeah. I like them, but I don't know if I should. Yeah, where you end up rooting for them, but you kind of feel icky about it. 
And like, I think the, the main person that would be considered the antihero is like the Walter White, uh, the chemistry professor, teacher turned meth dealer cooker. Yeah. From right. Breaking Bad. Yeah. From Breaking Bad. Yeah. That was like kind of the first major antihero yep. that dominated pop culture. It has been interesting just as someone who watches a lot of movies, so less the TV shows, but you know, you have these backstory movies now about the, the bad people, right? So like yeah. the Cruella movie. Joker. Yeah, the Joker. Um, yeah, it's interesting how that keeps happening. Trying to build empathy for the villain. Right. You know, so they become, you kind of want to cheer for them. Yeah. Uh, so that's not, her song is Antihero. And it's all about how she's the antihero in her own life. Okay. And she's always cheering for the antihero, which is her. And huh. the chorus is, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. That's how the mm. chorus goes. And there's another line in it, uh, a couple lines later, that says, I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. Meaning... Mm. Uh, I will look at something that I should not be looking at before I look at the thing that I should be looking at, which is dealing with myself and I'm yeah. the problem. Yeah. And she's not, I mean, it's a metaphorical mirror, but more the moral mirror of maybe I'm the destructive one in my life. Maybe it's me own, uh, doing chaos on this stuff. And it's got me thinking about uh, kind of basic Christianity 101, hmm. which I think before you can become a Christian, you have to be able to, in your heart to believe something like it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah, sure. Some some measure of sinful confession, which got me going. We've talked about for a while uh, doing this possible series in this podcast about looking at origins of the reformation, what's been called the doctrines of grace, trying to get down into the nitty gritty details about the fact that we humans are the problem. We're responsible for our sin and God is responsible for our salvation. And so what does that mean? And how does that play out? What does works righteousness really mean? What does legalism really mean? Uh, How are we different than the Roman Catholic tradition, especially the old Roman Catholic tradition? And how do we understand that at Redemption Gateway in general, but also Reformed evangelicalism more broadly? And I thought Taylor Swift was a great introduction to it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. So what? Yeah. Now what? How does how does the Bible speak into that reality? Is it just this? Okay, well, like uh, one of my CrossFit coaches today, a guy named Andrew, nice guy, he had a shirt on and said, "Do better." <laughs> and I thought that's where most people are. Yeah. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. All right. Well, stop it. Do better. Right. And is that like that's kind of a good conservative responsibility message? But is that biblically spiritually possible? Is that congruent with the message of Christ and the gospel? Like, where does personal responsibility end? Right. And where does divine responsibility begin in matters of salvation and specifically? Yeah. So we'll get into, I guess, the the five particular doctrines of grace. Um, but before we do that, why don't you, you mentioned the history of the Reformation. Uh, you know, we just recently, it was Reformation Day, you know, marked the anniversary of Martin Luther Nailing his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. I got to actually go see that earlier this spring, which was pretty cool. Wow. The, the wooden door has been replaced by a metal door that now has all 95 things actually etched into it. So it's kind of a neat deal, but got to be at that church. Anyway. It'd be a bummer trying to nail a thesis to a metal door. <laughs> you wouldn't get very far. Yeah. You clank, wouldn't get very clank, far. Clank. Never mind. So um, when you think about the history of the Reformation, that makes me think of the, the five solas. Yeah. So tell us what those are. So it really begins if you look at the way church history, basically from Augustine in the 4th, 5th century through uh, the Reformation, uh, 16th century, 1500s-ish, uh, would be called the, the period of Christendom, meaning 
there was the, the basically one church. There was an east-west split in in the 11th century over um, not necessarily as much theological divide, right? There's this called the Philike controversy and from the Son, uh, which is that the Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son or just from the Father. And they split over that, but those largely more have to do with um, uh, leadership than it had to do with actual theological difference. Okay. Uh, I mean, the theology matters, but less significant. So in the Western Church, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in the Eastern Church. Um, and that's 11th century. But then besides that, you have basically uh, the church in Rome, or that wasn't even considered like the Roman Catholic Church, it was considered the church. Right. Uh, was relatively unified as far as structure goes, even though it was pretty diverse within it. So uh, the Roman Catholic Church was not a monolith. There wasn't like absolutely uh, the things that now you think about, like the Roman Catholic view, there was Thomism, Thomas Aquinas' writings, but there's a ton of pockets uh, within that. And so the pockets are not great, but basically uh, you have these reformers named like Erasmus, Martin Luther uh, in particular, uh, who were writing. And so there's this phrase that Desimus Erasmus used, and that Erasmus was a huge player in translating the <clears throat> the King James, not the King James, the first English translation, um, and even um, making use of and propagating the Vulgate, which is a Latin translation, and uh, going back past the Vulgate to the Greek texts. And, and his whole phrasing was ad fontes, meaning like... To the fount. Yeah, to the fount. Back to the fountain or the source. Or yeah. the Back to the sources. we got to go further back. Uh, we keep going back to the Vulgate, which was a translation of the Bible that was, writ- that was done by Jerome in the 4th, 5th century. We need to go back further. We need yeah, to so in case folks don't know this, the... The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is written almost totally in Hebrew, a few little spots that are Aramaic. The New Testament written in Greek. So the Vulgate is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament into Latin, which really was the dominant Bible for a long time, yeah. Hundreds of years. The Vulgate also included things that were not scriptural. Uh, It also included the Mid-Testament history books. And Jerome didn't want to include those initially, but then the... Leaders asked him to, and so he did, saying it'd be confusing. So, the reason the Roman Catholics have the have the apocryphal literature in their Bibles is because Jerome put it in his translation because it'd be useful. It was never meant to be understood yeah. as biblical. So, if someone's thinking, "Okay, I'd like to actually get this Bible into the vernacular for the ordinary people. I want to get it into German. I want to get it into English, whatever it is." They're saying rather than translating from a translation. Let's yeah. go ad fontes. Let's go back to the source. Let's translate from the original rather than from a translation of a translation. Yeah, and the part of what they're going at is like, hey, the whole reason they did the Vulgate in the first place, this Latin translation, was so that people could read their Bibles. Yeah. Now we have this whole situation. Uh, you know, people couldn't read Greek and Hebrew in the fourth century, so they're like, let's do let's do a Latin translation. Now it's been a thousand years, and people don't read Latin much anymore. Uh, how about we get the Bible in German? How about we get the Bible in English? How about we get the Bible? And, yeah. and the Roman Catholic Church was uh, not high on that. And so, uh, yeah, Erasmus goes, we need to go back to the sources, which he largely got from the Vulgate translation of Psalm 41, 42.1. As a deer plants for flowing streams, ad fontes. Hmm. So pants my soul for you, O God. Meaning, let's go back to those living streams. Let's go back to the word itself, not translations of the word uh, translations, other translations, but try to get back to the original pen. And so they start doing yeah. a, a lot of research. And so well, a few weeks ago I was in DC and got to go to the museum of the Bible 
and went through all this stuff. And if you ever go to DC, it's really great. You should check out that museum. It's, it's really well done. Um, but one of the things you learn from that is the people who were involved in these translation efforts, uh, many were killed for it. I mean, this was like a big deal to change the Latin, you know, translate, you know, into the, the ordinary language. And I mean, we, we now have, I mean, I can pull up 25 different English translations on my phone, right? We just take this for, for granted free. Yeah. for free. Yeah. Um, I also saw this, this is wild. It took, uh, you know, we're not quite to Gutenberg in the part of the story, but it would take a scribe about two and a half years to hand copy a full Bible. Wow. Gutenberg got it down to a week, which we just think like, holy smokes, that is like technological change. No wonder, no wonder the scripture was able to go all over the place. So anyway, so, so back to the sources, but it's worth noting that these Re- Reformation theologians were not interested in overthrowing the, the Roman Catholic Church. They're interested in reforming it. It was not revolution. It was a reform. Yeah. They loved the church. They wanted the whole church, the big C church, all of the people who believed Jesus rose from the dead. They wanted to stay unified, and they were not super interested in doing that. Uh, and uh, even like as we get into like this, what we're going to end up talking about is uh, like doctrines of grace, reformed theology, Calvinism. Uh, this is like what uh, Charles Spurgeon said, this big Baptist preacher. I don't know if he was big, but I mean, he was... He was big. Big in terms of From influence. the pictures, he looks yeah, like he was yeah. a good-sized man. My point was influential. Not, yes, okay. Not 6'5 or whatever. This uh, normal size but influential pastor says, uh, someone asked him, are you a Calvinist or are you Reformed? And he said, um, if by that you mean believing in the doctrines of grace that Calvin taught, that Augustine taught before him, that the apostle taught before him, and that Jesus taught before him, then yes. <laughs> yeah. So this is, he's, he, even Spurgeon, who was pretty famous for being a reformed guy, a Calvinist guy, yeah. is like, look, that's a fair shorthand, but I'm really trying to get back to what Paul taught and what Jesus taught, not necessarily what Augustine taught or even not necessarily what Calvin taught. And so there's, uh, the tradition of church history is a meaningful and good starting place, but you never want to get into traditionalism, whereas you're submitting to the tradition on its own for its own sake, not necessarily insofar as it's faithfully telling you what the church taught. So there is uh, that was the impulse, that was desire. Let's get back to the sources. Let's go uh, all the way back there. Um, but there's also there's these moral and theological issues that were pressing some of these things, right? So the church is decidedly reactive or responsive. You can I'm meaning this term positively, like as. As the culture changes, the church responds with address from God's word. This is how the prophets did it in the Old Testament, right? Um, God would make covenant, and then church culture or local cultures would shift, and the prophets would come out and say, here's how you're unfaithful. Be faithful. Like, it would be, let's get back. Let's get back to the covenant. There are the, the, the litigators. There are, there are covenant lawyers saying we need to get back to being in there. So this... Uh, Isabella of Castile said this in November of 1500. So this is way before Calvin, way before Luther, uh, the dissolution, so describing like the the failures of the Roman Catholic Church, souls entrusted to the clergy receive great damage for the majority of the clergy are living in open concubinage. So, wow. so, this, so not even just like a handful of pastors here and there, a handful of clergy here and there, but the majority of the clergy have these women... That they're one, the clergy was at this time required to be celibate, required to be unmarried, required to, uh, you know, essentially see themselves as yoked to the 
church, not to a woman. And you have the majority of the clergy living in open concubinage, meaning they're wow. having sex yeah. with these like prostitutes or unmarried women. So not only are they violating the terms of their uh, priesthood agreement by but they're kind of like trying to loophole this thing like well we're not married we're just having a lot of sex yes which means they're also violating the scriptures yeah so at this point it's not just they're violating the teaching of the roman church they're violating the teachings of uh, the bible and so there's fornication happening and it's the majority of the clergy are doing this openly meaning there's not even a real reverence or fear of the lord that's like 1500 then you have these various other uh theological failures that i would say are go contra scripture and in 1087, you have this idea of the doctrine of ex cathedra or papal infallibility. Um, Pope Gregory said this: um, the Roman Church has never erred, nor will it err to all eternity. The Scripture bearing witness. Pope Gregory said that 1087. Um, in 1215, you have the Fourth Lateran Council, where they formally affirm the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, meaning, until that point, there had been kind of a mystery or a breadth of understandings of. What exactly is the bread and the wine? And in 1215, you have this view that like the, the bread and wine are become transubstantiation. They transform into the body and blood of Jesus. So you're literally eating the body and blood of Jesus. So that was, until that point, it had been kind of like, there's mystery, it's diverse. Some people held that, some people didn't. But in 1215, the official doctrine of the church became transubstantiation. Uh, then you had, uh, in 1490s, you had this... Uh, growing uh, idea that you could pay money to get out of purgatory faster. Uh, indulgences, they call this. Johann Tetzel said, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. It's amazing that he had such good rhyming, considering he didn't speak English, but that is pretty cool. It might have rhymed in Latin that <laughs> translated it. I think it did. Okay. Yeah, But no, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah that's, a, that's a devastating idea, right? And they would use, you know, I mean, that's a good way to, Get money for a building campaign. Incredibly is to effective. say, hey, if you give, you will help your dead ancestors get out of purgatory. Yeah, Redemption Gateway has a mortgage, and as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, right, your yeah, your loved ones who are suffering will be, cease suffering. And so, if you care about your loved ones, give us your money. It is, uh, it is effective at certainly manipulating the uneducated and the poor, right, and the compassionate. And so. Horrendous. This is one of the things. Well, and, and because people don't have a Bible in their language, and many people at that point are also illiterate, where even if they had one in their language, it wouldn't help them that much. You know, their ability to go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not in the Bible. You know, like if we started teaching that, uh, huge numbers of people hopefully would leave our church. Probably and, yeah. and the reason is they would go, hey, I, I have the book here. I know what it says. It doesn't say anything about that. What are you doing, man? Yeah. But there was no ability for people to do that. Yeah, so people were, and this was really the thing that um, ticked Martin Luther off the most. The indulgences. The indulgences. Yeah. I mean, ticked him off the most is probably an overstatement, but that pushed him over the edge. You know, the straw that breaks camel's back. And right. A huge chunk of his 95 Theses address papal authority and indulgences, things like that. So then it's uh, the next, uh, within the next like 10, 15 years, in March uh, 1517, you have this kind of halvesies, weak attempt at reform called the Fifth Lateran Council. And it was actually, I was wrong. It was this that Martin Luther was like, okay, we all see there's a problem here. Let's do something about it. And the Roman Catholic Church is like, yes, we'll do something about that problem. Then they have this kind of spineless attempt at reform, the Fifth Lateran Council. And after that thing fails, so that happens in March, a couple months later, 
Martin Luther nails his 95 Theses, October 31st, Happy Halloween, 95 Theses, critiquing. Uh, four, 34 of them critique the papal office, 45 of them critique indulgences as practices. Yeah, wow. Those are two big deals. And again, to this point, there's a lot of variability within the Roman Catholic Church. There's not uh, decidedly these various things. Um, but it's three years later, Pope Leo X uh, calls 52 of Martin Luther's 95 Theses heresy, excurge domine, meaning contrary to church teaching, contrary to doctrine. Um, and if you embrace these, you're in bad shape. They call Luther to repent. Then you have this thing called the Diet of Worms, mm -hmm. which is not a weight loss plan. <laughs> it's a meeting at a place called Worms. I was confused. Worms. Worms, yeah. Is actually how you say it. Diet of Worms. I've never been there. So. Yeah. And Luther goes, here I stand, I can do no other. Bada bing, bada boom. 30 years later, I have this thing called the Council of Trent, 1550s, where this, in my view, is where... Uh, I would say the Roman Catholic Church goes like formally off the rails theologically. You have this formalization of this doctrine of ex opere operato, which is Latin for the work works on its own or the work worked works on its own. You have this um, institutionalization of works righteousness, salvation by participating in specific works. So when you think about salvation or righteousness by works, a lot of times we think that means like, helping sweet ladies cross the street or serving in community. But was, uh, that's that's could be called like a legalistic instinct, like be a good person, God will love you. The Roman Catholic Church has never taught that, like be good and God will save you, but it has formally taught the sacramentalism, meaning you do these sacraments, these, these practice, these specific practices, these are the means by which you become justified. So they have seven sacraments. And before this time, they're, they're, this was culturally widely practiced, but it was formally affirmed at the Council of Trent. And you have this uh, justification by faith alone is formally anathematized, meaning yeah. if you believe in justification by faith alone, um, and you are anathema, meaning you're hell-bound, you're damned, um, you're a heretic, and you're not part of God's people. And so, that Because that was a big thing that Luther, you know, while he was initially ticked about papal authority and indulgences, and he didn't stop being ticked about that. He also had this awakening around the doctrine of justification by faith, that you're made righteous, not through these various things, but only by trusting Christ. Yeah, and they say, eh, false, we're not going to allow that. Yeah, and this does, so then for about 400 years, I would say, or like probably the darkest period of the Roman Catholic Church, which is when the Council of Trent happens, but then in 1962, you have Vatican II, which rolls out, which softens dramatically a lot of Council of Trent stuff. So uh, you end the Latin war only masses, uh, the priest now faces the congregation rather than just facing the, the sacraments. Uh, reading of Bibles encouraged. Uh, people are no longer anathematized from attending Protestant services. Uh, there's like a softening of this justification by faith is anathema stuff. And they kind of, uh, so at least since 1962, Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church has been decidedly more favorable to Protestant churches. But so this is one of the things like it's, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years here. Sure. Uh, so what the Roman Catholic Church was, 1550s to 1962, is fairly different. Now there's obviously, it's like a billion Catholics, you know, the pockets of who thinks yeah. what and where is all over there. But basically, um, Luther's followers come up with what they call the five solas, okay. uh, which were decidedly trying to be clear about how are we different than Rome. Okay. Uh, how are we going to 
Like what are we going to emphasize? Yeah, what are we going to emphasize? And so there's sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratiae, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. And you can't really understand these unless you understand what exactly it is that they're critiquing in the Roman Catholic Church in the 15 and 1600s. And so I think we talked through those. Yeah, great. And see how long it takes. So the first one is sola scriptura, scripture alone, which means uh, scripture has the authority, not tradition. Uh, scripture is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice. Uh, and so we need to understand here, like we don't want to rightly understand tradition. One, all people everywhere are part of a tradition, meaning we have gut instincts, assumptions coming from somewhere. Uh, it's actually not being aware of our tradition, I think creates a tremendous amount of problems for us because we believe that we're like neutrally reading the Bible mm. through like objective lenses. Right. And that uh, it's just silly. We're, we cannot do that. Right. We're always reading it as humans with biases that are trying to be confirmed. And even the, even when we feel cut by the scriptures, we're doing that. So that selectively. And so the canon of scripture, the 66 books, uh, we all different traditions have what functionally was called a canon within a canon meaning parts of the Bible that we tend to emphasize more or tend to emphasize less. Like Protestants in our tradition, our canon within the canon is like John, Romans, Genesis, the yeah. last chapter in Revelation. <laughs> you know, the last two <laughs> right. chapters in Revelation, right? And like we, we go there, we like it, it, it's clear to us. You start talking um, James, Job, Second Kings, you know, like we're less comfortable, less familiar with that. Um, yeah. And partly that's because John and Romans most decidedly contradict the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's very easy to find your identity negatively, meaning we're not that, yeah. and we know we're not that because of this. And so we go to Romans and John uh, a good amount. Uh, so Sola Scriptura is about the final authority. It's not about uh, believing uh, that tradition has no value. So G.K. Chesterton calls like tradition is uh, the democracy of the dead, and he says democracy is including people's voice uh, regardless of whether they happen to be rich or poor. And he said tradition is including people's voice regardless of whether they happen to be dead or alive. Yeah, so tradition informs you. Other people's voices inform you. Uh, history informs you. Um, creation informs you. Yes. Right? There's these various... But the scripture is authoritative. Yeah, we really... We, we want to try very hard with the best of our ability to let... Scripture trump all the other forms of formation yeah. and ideation. So we always want to be trying to the best of our ability to, to critique our tradition with the scriptures. Yeah, This is the healthiest and best form of deconstruction. It is doing what Jesus said when he said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. Yep. It's going, the tradition says, but the scriptures say, mm -hmm. and we... Well, and that really is at the heart of this Reformation, right? This is, yeah. like you said, it's not a revolution. It's not trying to tear it down, but it is saying, okay, we have drifted away from things that the scripture would allow us to do, encourage us to do, uh, instruct us to do. We need to get back to scripture as the authority, sola scriptura. Yeah, and where in contrast in the Roman church, even now, I read this book recently called Was the Reformation a Mistake? And I'll summarize it for you. No. <laughs> uh, there, there you go. Uh, but That was your conclusion or the author's conclusion? Uh, well, there's two authors. Oh, okay. A Protestant guy and a Roman Catholic guy. Oh, okay. And the Roman Catholic guy is basically saying, hey, I think the Protestant church misunderstands thing, these things about the Roman Catholic church. 
and Kevin Van Hooser, who I think is like as good as anybody who's alive, is the Protestant guy, and is like, maybe we've misunderstood you, but you're still wrong based on what you just said. Yeah, that's kind okay. of his argument. Okay, because he keeps going back to like, well, church teaching is church teaching is, and Van Hooser goes, that's all good and fine, uh, but I don't want to argue with you about what church teaching is. I want to argue with you about what does the scripture say. Yeah, and so we need to go back further. Yep. So Augustine. We revere him as theologian, as doctor of the church, as teacher, as huge trajectory setter. But the scriptures are our final authority. So we'll yeah. go back. So that's sola scriptura. It's not new to scriptura, scripture naked by itself. Hmm. Like I think we need to be able to read scripture, uh, recognize that we're reading it within our tradition. Yeah. And that there are these voices that even shape the way we understand scripture and interpret it and those types of things. Sure. And so it'd be naive to think that you can like the Quran, you know, like, uh, this like view that a book dropped out of the sky, cultureless. Yeah. Like in order to read the scriptures, you have to try to understand the world of the scriptures, which includes like understanding the ancient Near East, which includes understanding the first century. And so to rightly read the scriptures, you need to understand other history things as well like you can't really read acts and not have a general understanding of what first century mediterranean culture was like sure like it helps you so other things help you read the scriptures so we can't uh, just read the scriptures by themselves and say we've done all the work we need to but we want to read broadly history and understand what's going on that the bible's even confronting like for example uh there's uh like in corinth you know they have all these temple prostitutes and but a ton of what we know about the extent and depth and breadth of like sexual idolatry in Corinth that even helps you understand first and second Corinthians and helps you understand what Paul's doing in Corinth in the book of Acts, we know from other archaeological evidence and data. And so Christians shouldn't just like plug their ears when reading archaeology or history, but we go, hey, we understand this. So it's so this is not about what's helpful or useful. It's about final authority. The final authority is the scriptures. Okay. It's not saying only the scriptures are helpful or useful. Next one is sola fide, faith alone. Faith is the only means by which we're justified. Uh, this kind of thing. So there's a guy who goes to a church named Tim Melberg. Mm-hmm. Remember him talking to me about this? We were painting houses in Rocky Point when I was like 14 or 15. Oh, wow. And I remember staying on a ladder and him explaining to me sola fide while we were painting. He was an intern at the time in the church. So he okay. was probably in his early 20s. Uh, and he said, you know, there's faith equals or faith produces a justification and good works. Meaning that when you have faith in Christ, you do then try to follow him, try to obey him, and you're saved. Right? So faith produces justification, salvation, and faith produces works. So it's faith equals works plus justification. In contrast to the Roman Catholic or the legalistic formula, you just swap the plus sign and the equal sign. So instead of faith equals works plus justification, it becomes faith plus works equals justification. Hmm. Okay. Meaning I believe in Christ and I do good things. And when those two things function together, then I'm saved or justified or, and by justified, it's like the, the legal declara- declaration of innocent, you know, the judge hits the gavel, not guilty, right? Yep. That's justification. Uh, and so, 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 yeah, it's the question of what makes you right with God. Yeah, so the Roman Catholic... Are you right with God because you did these things and believed in Jesus or just because you trusted Jesus? 
Yeah, and so the Roman Catholics like, faith is tremendously important. you got to have faith. You have to trust Christ. He absolutely died for your salvation. You need to believe that he died for your salvation. Also, you need to do the sacraments appropriately. Ex opere operato, the works are effective to produce salvation. Yeah. And so Roman Catholics, just like current Mormons, don't say faith is not important. They don't encourage you to not... They don't encourage you to not trust Jesus died yeah. for your sins, but it's like faith and. Right. So it's faith plus nothing equals justification, not faith plus something equals justification. So that's sola fide. Next one we got here is sola gratiae. Gratia. I'm not a Latin guy. I don't know. <laughs> we didn't study any. We got a few uh, high school kids here that take Latin. We could ask them how to say that. Clintock High School didn't do a ton of Latin. Let's <laughs> say that. Uh, this idea, grace is the only explanation for how we are welcomed into God's family. Uh, I've always kind of seen that. It's pretty similar to sola fide. Uh, it's grace, meaning uh, the gift. So another way of translating the Greek word, uh, charis, could be translated grace or gift. Yeah, I think about it, and I don't know that this is any kind of technical thing, but I think about grace alone is about the reason, right? I'm not saved because of my merit. I'm saved mm-hmm. because of God's grace, because yes. of God's kindness, because of God's God's faithfulness. Faith is the means. Yeah, the instrument. Yeah, it's 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 the way it happens. Um, but it, the reason is grace. The way it happens is through faith. It's important because some people think we're saved because of our faith. Like mm, as though yeah. faith is a work that right. earns or merits salvation. No. Yeah, do I have enough faith? Yeah, that I'm saved yeah. because I believe. It's right. like, not really. You're saved because God is gracious, and your belief is like the the currency of the relationship. Yeah. It, that That is a really meaningful distinction because it's not on the grounds of our faith. It's on the grounds of the blood of Jesus and the grace of God that we're saved. Faith is the means of the instrument of the connection to him. Yeah. So grace over merit, uh, we don't, uh, God doesn't owe us anything. We don't earn salvation through faith. We don't earn salvation through works. Uh, another way of even translating, like the Hebrew word for grace, hen, could be favor. Mm, okay. Like it's just, uh, it's on God. God extends grace and favor, um, and it's a gift. Uh, the next one is solus Christus. I mean, and this is less about um, exactly like the means of salvation in Protestant churches, but this is more about access to God. Jesus is the only mediator between God and humanity meaning Jesus Christ is the true and faithful high priest who entered once and behind the curtain offering sacrifice for sin, that the Old Testament office of priest is fulfilled and ended in Christ, meaning we do not need a priest to mediate our relationship with the Father. So this is more about Christ over priests. Mm, okay. So it's this is de-emphasizing the clergy, decentering the clergy or the priest is going... This whole idea of I go to confession and I confess my sins to a priest so that the priest can therefore absolve me to the Father, it's no, I have an advocate, yeah. and it's Christ, and I don't. I confess directly to him. He is. I, I have a priest. I have a high priest, the true and greater high priest, and he's Christ. I don't need to confess my sins to a priest. That's one of the reasons why you and I are not called priests. Right. We're called shepherds or leaders or pastors or teachers. Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, there are still sometimes people who treat us like mediators. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know, when you preach, I feel so much closer to God, and I and I I hope what they mean is like you're a good preacher, and 
yeah. you help me see things that I couldn't maybe have seen by myself. Um, but in, in subtle ways, there's times when, you know, we can make leaders into a kind of intermediary uh, between us and the Lord, and we don't want to do that. Yeah, we need to guard ourselves from believing that certain people have special, ac- special access to God. Uh, that's not broadly accessible. Yeah, we all have special special access to God, and right. it's because of the work of Christ, our true and greater High Priest. Mm-hmm. So, we don't have any priests on our payroll, nor do I think actually priests exist in the literal sense. I think only Christ is the only one. Okay, like there's even though we would be called the a kingdom of priests. So that's talking about the the responsibility we carry to bear witness to the world. Okay. But once someone's a Christian, when someone like knows Christ, he is like, we're, so we're the body of Christ. And so there's a sense in which we represent Christ to the world. But once someone knows Christ, they have direct access, direct line. There's no, yeah. it's not like in the old. So the priesthood of all believers then would be what? The priesthood of all believers is the fact that we all have direct access to Christ. So it's important. That's the reason why we confess our sins to one another. Yeah. So it's not like Luke Simmons on the virtue of your shepherding role Mm -hmm. i i could confess my sin to molly or to you and it's equally effective i confess my sin to abby simmons equally effect like there's sure like we're all because of our direct access to christ we all can function as priests to one another Mm -hmm. so it's less about um hierarchy yeah and well because ultimately me molly nor abby could forgive your sin christ can yeah yeah you're there to like help point me to Christ, yeah. not to functionally do something that yeah. um, was reserved for some special ordained sure. person. All right, I so the last one? last one is Soli Deo Gloria. This is ex- meant to correct the teachings of Mary and the saints and hmm, the veneration okay. of angels and saints and Mary. Glory to God alone, um, meaning God is the only person worthy of veneration, the only person worthy of praying to or uh, asking to pray for you, like, and the only person of glorifying or honoring in that level. And so this is uh, contradicting the Roman teaching of we pray to, or we we ask saints or Mary to pray on our behalf, can you pray for me uh, to dead people? Because they have, again, special access or some venerated status. Uh, so I don't think it's fair to say Roman Catholics worship Mary. Some might on accident because they don't understand things. And But also like in the 1500s, there was like this, uh, going above and beyond teaching on Mary, uh, even like on this cat on this book I read, the Reformation mistake. The only part where I found myself being like actually angry <laughs> in the Roman cat was this was the chapter on Mary, because the Roman Catholic teaching was that all these uh, things that Christ did as the true and final temple, uh, like in John one, Jesus the final temple. They they understood Mary to be the temple, hmm. like the, the one who carried God. Okay. Like one a carrier of God's presence, uh, she's the Theotokos, the God bearer. Like she was the, the virgin birth was uh, was there, you know, and she did make faith filled, good, and emulate like choices we should emulate. I was gonna yeah. say emulatable, but I don't know, didn't know if that was a word. Yeah, we want to honor Mary. We want to look to her like we would look to a lot of people in Scripture and go, "There's a good example. There's some things to learn from." There's somebody who demonstrated faithfulness in a number of ways. Yeah, we don't venerate, but her. not divine. We don't revere revere her. We don't see her as particularly, yeah, uh, extra special. And so, really, the only person worthy of worship, veneration, of setting our affections on, uh, is God Himself. And really, the only person that 
like the only advocate we need before the Father is Jesus. Right? We have this advocate, and, right? And it's it's Christ, and He's speaking good things to us, yep. not to us, I guess, to us, but mostly of us is what I meant to say to the Father that we have. Yeah, it'd be like if somebody you know wanted a favor from me, yeah, and they thought, you know what, I better, uh, I, I'll talk to his mom, and maybe his mom can put in a good word for me, and then yeah. I could give a favor. Well, if if you can just come directly to me, uh, then I can just give you the favor, right? And that's a little bit how it is. We can just go directly to Jesus. We don't go to need to go to Jesus' mom. Go, hey, Mary, could you, uh, you know, could you put a good word in for me? We can just go, hey, Jesus, I know you love me. I know you gave yourself for me. Uh, here's what I need. Absolutely. And so this. this so let, let's just run through those again real fast. So. Uh, Sola Scriptura. So Scripture is the final authority. Sola Fide. Faith is the. The means. Means by which we enter the kingdom, not works. Sola gratia. Grace as opposed to merit. Yeah, faith, uh, grace is the grounds. Yeah. Sola Christus, solus Christus. So we can go directly to Jesus. We don't have to go through another intermediary. Yeah, or directly to the Father through Jesus. Yes. Yeah. And soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. Yeah, this is for God. There's no other venerated saints that deserve the same level of glory or praise. Yeah, we don't revere Luke Simmons. We don't revere Seth Trout. We don't revere John Piper. We don't revere Calvin. We don't revere Mary. We right. We revere Christ. Yeah. So that's the big idea. The five souls. That's what those are called. Great. And, and I think they're helpful uh, in that they really orient us in like, sometimes when we say that we're like gospel-centered or Christ-centered, that's what we're getting at is Christ saves us and we're orienting ourselves to him, not to something else, not a system of morals, not a religious system of uh, earning our salvation, not some pastor, not some even theological system, but Christ himself is the grounds of our faith and the means of our faith and the hope of our faith and the one that we give great gratitude and honor to for our faith. And so we really want to um, honor him and him alone. And so mm-hmm. that's that's like the, those are like what I would consider like a backbone of like a Christ-centered faith. And that's really like Reformation history yeah. you know, 101. Okay. Well, that's probably a good place for us to wind down for today. Um, but when we pick up, we'll dive in more to these Reformation doctrines of grace, yeah. which really get deeper into some of the things we just talked about and circle us back to our good friend Taylor. Taylor uh, Swift. You know, because really, if you're going to understand grace and if you're going to understand your need for faith and if you're going to understand why God really does deserve an incredible amount of glory, then you have to understand that you are the problem. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. And and here's why. I'm going to just keep piling on the Taylor Swift thing. If I'm the problem, or if we are the problem, then I can't really fully finally trust human tradition. Yeah, I can't be the solution also. Yeah, and if I'm the problem, I can't trust my ability to do good works. Right. If I'm the problem, then I can't trust my ability to earn something. And if I'm the problem, then, and if other humans are the problem, I can't trust them to be my mediators. And if other humans and myself are the problem, then I can't really revere mm. other people. Yeah. So... Uh, if I'm the problem, it's me, then I need a Christ alone situation in order to bring about what we're trying to get at. Yeah. So we'll we'll continue in our Reformation history. Yeah, well that uh that'll be fun. And um yeah, I guess I uh I hope you'll join us next time. Seth, is there some way for people to get into the uh the King Culture fan club? Like special access to tickets or anything like that coming? Yeah, there is. Oh yeah? What is it? It's to to be announced. Oh, wow. Okay. Coming soon uh so thank you all for uh listening and uh we will see you next time on king and culture I-